Hey guys, great conversation coming up for you today. Before we get started, a quick note, I did have a couple audio issues with my mic today. So you'll notice that throughout the conversation, it breaks up a little bit. We did our best to fix it. We didn't want to cut much out because it's a great discussion. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. We are live with Jay Vasanthraja. How you doing, sir? Good, John. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I've been following you on Twitter for a little while now. I love following people from Toronto because that's where I'm based. And it's fun seeing lo- local folks getting big on Twitter and, and doing exciting things. So let's just kind of start off with a one-minute background on, on who you are, and then we'll kind of get into some big topics. Yeah, that, that sounds good. So... I'm a uh, Toronto-based entrepreneur, investor. You know, I've had a, uh, a decade of experience building, investing in, and acquiring businesses. My focus these days is mostly around private equity investing. So doing full acquisitions of companies, mostly software and, and uh, you know, uh, asset light uh, tech-enabled businesses. My, my background, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a CPA by trade. I, I did a couple of years at Deloitte here in Toronto, you know, left the corporate world to start my first business, which was a PPC agency, you know, used, continue using that cash to grow my investment portfolio, which, um, you know, translates into real estate stock. And as I mentioned, interest in privately held companies. And, you know, maybe I'll just a couple of hobbies, I guess. I, I'm, I'm a big traveler, been to... Uh, uh, you know, dozens of countries around the world, you know, fitness fanatic, go to the gym every day and, um, you know, spend time with my family uh, as much as I can, especially now that I have a two-year-old daughter. It's, uh, you know, families become increasingly important as I, as I get older. That's awesome. Well, listen, there's so many directions, but I could talk to you about travel, parenting. I could talk to you about so much, but let's stay on business for now. And then I might get back to the, uh, the parenting in a few minutes because I, I got a three-year-old now as well and, and a one-year-old. So that, that's a whole oh, nice. different topic. <laughs> So you mentioned that your background, your CPA, you've done private equity. I also know like you've worked in real estate, you've bought businesses. Where did your interest in business come from? Was that from a very young age or was that later on you realized that like you kind of were just interested in commerce in general? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I guess it's all relative, but I think I'm a, I was a late bloomer in, in getting interested in business. My first couple of years of university, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. You know, I come from a household of, of small business. My dad, I've watched my dad build small businesses and, and you know, generate wealth for our family, uh, a, a number of different ones. And I've, I've seen his, you know, was really inspired by his work ethic, but it didn't really click really until maybe about my third year in university. Uh, and I really started getting into the actual, like, you know, like, like super businessy stuff. Started, you know, doing my CPA courses. I didn't decide to do my CPA probably until third, third year university. And so it was probably somewhere around there where I really got fascinated into businesses and specifically in investing as well. Like I, I took a handful of investing courses in university and, you know, learned about like Graham Dodd and Charlie Munger and, and, uh, and Warren Buffett. And so just kind of, I would say somewhere in the second half of university, but you know, I've seen a lot of kids these days just, just absolutely get deep into business. Like when they're like 18, like, you know, 16, 17, 18. Right. I'm like, Holy shit. Like, Back when, like, I, I, didn't, I had no idea what I wanted to do at th- those age. And, you know, that's when you're kind of forced to decide, like, what career path, like, you're going to take through, through, like, university or college. And so, uh, to me, that seems absurd. So, I had no idea what I wanted to do at, at, at that point in my life. But, yeah, like, I, I, as I took more and more co- university courses, uh, you know, I started, you know, getting more fascinated with, especially the numbers side, right? Like, I, I, you know, as a CPA, 
lots of numbers and really fascinated by the you know f- financials of a business. And so that's kind of where I, I, I first started getting an interest in that area. Yeah, it's so funny. If you look at people who grew up with like side hustles, they were doing this at you know eight and that at thirteen, and they're selling tickets to this when they were seventeen. And I had a bit of that. I had a snow shoveling company when I was thirteen, and looking back, I was doing a lot of things like building systems and you know uh, allocating labor and things like that. I didn't know at the time what I was doing, but there are a lot of people who are very successful who really don't pick up their their craft until they're in their twenties and even their thirties. And I think that's fine. I, I think anybody who says, "Oh, well, you know, you got to start young." Like, no, you don't. You can just have a normal life. And then when you're, when you're 22 years old, you discover Buffett or Munger or, you know, whoever it is, and, and you get into it then. Yeah. And I'll say that when it clicked, it really clicked, right? Like, it was kind of like, I was just like unsure, kind of wandering, kind of discovering stuff. And then when I, when it like clicked halfway through university, it, I just went from like zero to a hundred. Like uh, I was doing my CPA courses. I was involved with like the, you know, like the investment society at uh, my university, which is Guelph. You know, I, I started, I did start a side hustle, selling websites, learning how to like build websites, HTML, JavaScript, CSS. And like, it, it just kind of like the difference was, it was just like, it, you just become passionate, right? When you, when you do kind of find your calling or your, you know, it clicks, you're like, wow, this is really fun. This is like the best hobby I've ever had. Like, you know, um, you, you just said it when, when, when the, when the livelihood feels like a hobby. Yeah, that, that's it. It, exactly. So, um, so yeah, I, I think the, it is arbitrary that we're supposed to figure out what we're do, what we're, what we want to do with our, our career. Like when you're 18, it just doesn't make sense, but just, it is a great feeling knowing that like what, when you do click and find what you want to do, it's just, it's, it is a great feeling. Yeah. So tell me about the PPC agency. What, what was that? And how did you get into that? Yeah, that was my first business. It was a, uh, it was a company called client flow. We're based out of Toronto. Our staff was here. Office was here, but we work with clients kind of across North America. We manage pay-per-click campaigns. So for those that are listening that aren't completely familiar with digital marketing, pay-per-click mostly includes Facebook ads and Google ads. So, you know, you, you're the way you advertise, you pay every time someone clicks on your ad. I got into that business because I, I was, I was kind of at the time I was fascinated by this company called Outrank and it was, it was a subsidiary of Rogers, the large Rogers communications. And I remember I had a, a couple colleagues that worked there. And they were selling these, like, basically these like digital marketing packages, which is basically a PPC package to so these kind of small business owners across Canada. It was a really terrible package, right? But they, they were, they were absolutely killing it. Like they, they were, they were selling like, you know, thousands of these every single month. They had an entire sales floor right, right in Toronto, like King of Bathurst. And I thought to myself, there's no way I couldn't do a worse job than, than these guys. Like, the, the, like I had spent a bit of time doing a bit of digital marketing for my dad's businesses and stuff. So I kind of had my, I knew my way around how to manage like a Google ads campaign and how to like generate conversions online and all that kind of stuff. And so, and I was, and at that point too, I was really itching to get, to just, just start something, right. Just to be like, Hey, I'm young, don't have any dependents, not married. I was kind of already a couple of years into Deloitte and I knew the writing was on the wall. I was like, I, I, though, I, though I liked my time there and I appreciate people I worked with had a great team, all that kind of stuff. I just, I knew I wasn't going to be there for, like I wasn't a lifer at Deloitte or in the CPA trade in general. Like I just wasn't built for, for being an accountant. So I left, started that business. We ran that, that thing for about five years. We scaled it. You know, we, we, we had about a dozen team members and we, we eventually grew out of kind of working with smaller businesses to larger companies. Like we worked with one of our largest companies was a company called InMode. 
Um, you, you've seen, you've probably seen me write about them a lot and they've, they're a medical device company and they went public while we were you know, under our tenure. They did like a $340 million IPO back in 2019. Wow. And, you know, we work with YC uh, startups all the way up until established mature companies. You were running this agency from 2013 onwards. And were you doing like, was it Google ads, Facebook ads? Was it a whole bunch of services or were you really focused? When we started, it was a whole bunch of services, mostly around pay-per-click. So like Facebook and Google and like building like websites and landing pages and things like that. But eventually we basically specialized in just, just Google PPC. That, that, that was kind of our, our, I would say like 90% of our revenue was, was Google PPC. And, and we did off projects here too. Like we, we developed an app for, for a company and we did kind of various odd jobs here or there, but most of the revenue was, was PPC. Yeah. What's so interesting about what you said was you found this agency and you saw that you could do the job at least as good as them. And I find that that formula is so common amongst entrepreneurs I talk to. So whether it's like property management or agency, design work, home services companies, a lot of these people, when they start their first company, they're just looking outward at companies that exist. And maybe they're like, you know, 20, 30, 40 person businesses. And you say to yourself, you know, I can do that. And I can do it basically as a one man show and, and I'll grow from there. But that's an awesome formula. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs have taken that path. And it's a great path to, to go down because it lets you get into something without you know, having to have a ton of money to do it. That's exactly right. And I think I give that advice to basically anyone that's looking to start a business is I, I think starting a kind of a, like, a, like a service business where you're effectively selling your time or your employees time is pretty much one of the best ways to get into entrepreneurship because a PPC agency, a property management company, like, you know, anything, any kind of service business like that, there's usually a high demand for them. There's usually areas for improvement. It's a good way to start a business with very little capital, generate cash for yourself pretty quickly and put that cash away. Right. I mean, like after ha- half a decade or so, or maybe a decade even, like you should have built the, the, your service business should be generating enough cash flow where you're able to kind of build a pretty good investment portfolio or real estate portfolio, stock portfolio, whatever it might be. And that's wealth, right? And that, that, that right there is what's going to give you financial freedom. Like a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of looking for like that moonshot startup idea, you know, like the, the venture capital backed business. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really risky and it's tough to do if you're not already wealthy too, by the way, like, you know, if you're if you're struggling to kind of make your bill, pay your bills, and you don't have passive income already coming in to cover your bills, doing a startup where you may not, it may you know fail within a couple of years if it doesn't get funding and stuff like that. You just kind of, it's really hard. I think that's a hard way to build wealth um, for for basically the average person. It's so true. I was chatting with a buddy of mine on the podcast, um, Gassan Halazon, who's got a company called Emerge Commerce, and so Gassan has this background always in e-commerce, but. In his 20s, he had a business that was doing very well and he had a chance to exit young and he decided, no, I'm going to keep going and, and, you know, and try to build this thing. And the regret that he has now, uh, if you can call it a regret, is basically that if you have an opportunity in your 20s to have life-changing money, money that's going to basically set you up for life, you know, 5 or $10 million, but you know that your nest egg is kind of taken care of and you can pay yourself at least a living you know, wage uh, for the rest of your life, that's a good opportunity to take because your first business does not need to be the business that like you 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 de- dedicate your entire life to. And I think you, you just echo that. It's 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 really really good advice. So what 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 was the next step there? So you ha- you had this agency, and then what happened? Uh, along the way, uh, as I said, I, I was 
investing as much of the proceeds generated from my agency as possible, built a small real estate portfolio here in, in the GTA. After about five years or so, I had enough passive income coming in where I didn't really need to worry about my, my living expenses or, or anything like that. And I kind of, I, I took like a cold shower moment, right? I've been running this agency for about five years. At the time I was, I was pretty burnt out. You're kind of in, in, in a similar space, uh, working with clients or working with um, people. It's, it's really draining, right? I mean, it's long hours and, and, and it's, it's tough work, right? You're always under the gun in terms of performance and all that kind of stuff. After five years, I was pretty burnt out. At that point, I, d- I didn't really need to work. So I really kind of judged my options. So I was like, what, what should I spend my time doing? And I do this every few years, by the way, too. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen like Steve, Steve Jobs, like Stanford speech, one of my favorite speeches. But, you know, one of the things he says in that speech that always stuck with me was like, each day you wake up, or you look at, look at yourself in the mirror. You ask, like, think about how you're going to spend that day today. Is that what you really want to do? And, you know, if this was your last day, you know, is this how you'd spend it basically kind of thing? If the answer is no, too many days in a row, um, you got to make a drastic change, right? And, and otherwise, you'll kind of be stuck in this loop. And so after about five years or so, I did exactly that. I didn't want to run the agency anymore. My, I had a partner and we basically had decided to, to more or less wind it down. We had a few, we had, we had a handful of clients. We had to let some employees go. But uh, I decided to become like a full-time investor at that point and thought, you know, I want to get into the business of investing in existing businesses or, or buying existing businesses. And I had about a couple of years where, you know, I was exploring various different in- investment angles, like uh, looking into various software companies, looking into real estate as well. I wanted to see if maybe it made sense to continue scaling my real estate portfolio that I had going here. And then, you know, that was about at late 2018 or so. So it's been about four years since then and uh, basically been full-time investing, allocating capital. You saw from my, um, from my, probably from my tweet there that uh, I launched a new firm called Atlas View Equity a couple of years ago that focuses on buyouts of, of firms. And so that's kind of been my focus for the, you know, ever since I stopped running the agency is just full, full-time investing and, and allocating capital. And is your, so I have a bunch of questions about that because you've taken like this path and you make it sound easy, like, like, like every great entrepreneur makes it sound easy, but it's, I'm sure there's a, lo- a lot of struggle in there and a lot of figuring things out. Was the thesis when you when you kind of exited the agency and then said, "Okay, I'm going to become an investor." I'm assuming at that point you weren't you, you didn't need, need need to worry about a day to day living. You had enough saved up, enough passive cash flow coming in, so you had the freedom to be able to think about what you wanted to to do next. Is that is that right? That's correct. And also, when I did decide that, I I didn't know exactly what I wanted to invest in yet. I got there, there was kind of like a I'm still learning and discovering period that I went through, which I think is pretty crucial. By the way, I, I think a lot of people. If you have the means to kind of, you know, take a, a little bit of a breather and kind of re- assess all your options, I, I would highly recommend doing that for anyone who's not sure what they want to do. And so, yes, but, but, but John, to answer your question, yeah, I, I, I did have the luxury of doing that. That's great. And so it looks to me, um, and I want you to give me the explanation on Atlas, but it looks to me like so it's a private equity firm and you're acquiring businesses on the basis of cash flow. So you're not looking for to back startups or you know, VC back centers, you're looking for cash flow businesses. Is, is, that, is that the focus? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we're looking for companies that are generating positive cash flow somewhere in like the $1 million to $5 million per year range or full buyout. But we can, we typically entertain offers that are anywhere between like 50 to 100%, right? If the selling party, which is often a founder or an entrepreneur, that would like to stay on and, and kind of go on next chapter of the business with us. We were more than happy to do that. And, and actually, in many cases, we, we would actually prefer that, right? We're rolling some equity over. 
We're looking for businesses that yeah generate high cash flow where we can kind of bring our, our expertise in capital allocation and cash flow management to to optimize and and allocate the the cash to the you know best available option, whether that be potentially acquiring other businesses in that vertical uh, add on acquisitions afterwards, or you know potentially paying down debt if there's debt used in the in the transaction at close, or paying our investors a dividend, right? And so if there isn't a attractive option to reinvest the cash flow by acquiring other businesses, or sometimes organically as well, if there's like you know things we can invest in R and D or or sales and marketing that had a clear upside potential, we we may choose to do that, but to answer your question, we were looking for high cash flow businesses. So yeah, the, the, the bullseye kind of company that you're trying to target at Atlas View, can you give us a sense of what that target company is? The target company we're looking our ideal company, right? So even though we look at a range of companies and even though companies can be outside of the ideal target, our, we have a well-defined ICP, ideal customer profile. Basically, a founder-owned business, bootstrap, founder family-owned been around for about a decade, decade and a half, sometimes even two decades in either software or IT services, IT consulting, or some sort of tech-enabled business, and, and usually within one specific specific vertical, right? So like like maybe like a like a legal software or a um, you know software for in, in in healthcare or medical, and it's the the businesses isn't growing very fast, but it's also not shrinking very fast, so it's kind of maybe hovering along somewhere between the 10% growth rate, 5% growth rate year over year. It's cash flow positive. It has very dedicated team members who are passionate to the industry that they're in. And the founder uh, is simply looking to either retire, do something different, and wants to make sure that their employees and the customers that they've built over the over the years are well taken care of, right? And owned by um, a firm that's really going to drive the business kind of to the next level, but still keep the existing customer base and sorry, the existing employee base intact. And so you mentioned earlier that you're looking for asset light. What, what, what does that mean exactly? My expertise is in asset is inside asset light businesses. Um, so like, you know, things like services, things like software, things that don't have a lot of assets on the balance sheet. Except outside of probably real estate, <laughs> I've, I've probably never really invested in an asset heavy business where there's a lot of machinery or equipment or, or buildings that need to be maintained or upgraded all the time. Like, so things like manufacturing or, you know, like distribution or things like that. So I just, I just haven't, so, so an asset heavy business is business that has lots of assets on the balance sheet and generally usually lots of leverage too, and lots of debt. Asset light business is all about the PL, right? And so there's not too many things happening on the balance sheet. Assets are typically intangible, right? So like IP or like code bases or things like that, customer lists. And most of the action happens on the PL. And are you buying these things with the intention that you're gonna roll up your sleeves and and fix stuff up? Or are you hoping to just buy it and let it and let it sail? Yeah, good question. So we're pretty hands-on with, with our current portfolio companies. I wouldn't say we're in the trenches, meaning like doing a lot of the work. Like we work closely with the CEOs for each company. And, you know, we, we try to provide as much assistance and guidance as possible in areas that we know very well, like, like M&A, for example, or corporate finance and managing cash flows and, and financial reporting, things like that. But, you know, it's not just like we're cutting a check, investing money, and, you know, we, we don't see them until we are, we're ready to exit or once a year or so, like we're meeting with our CEOs on a weekly basis or even a bi-weekly basis to go through issues and stuff like that. So we're, we're, we're pretty hands-on involved, but we, but we don't actually run the company, right? Like we have, we want to make sure that there's a CEO 
that's ultimately in charge of the operations. In any business that we look to acquire as well, we need to figure out who's going to be the CEO if the CEO is leaving. Oftentimes, founders have a CEO in place, which is awesome. Um, it's, it's challenging to do, but I find that, you know, that those are amazing businesses, right? Whether it's like a general manager in place or a CEO in place, it's just running. Founder kind of takes like a more of like a, you know, passive slash, you know, like a chairman role or something. But yeah, there needs to be a CEO defined to, 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 to run the day-to-day operations. Right. That won't be and, us. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and are you, uh, are there, have you formalized like reports and sort of any kind of dashboard that you need? Is it, is every company different or, or are you like, Hey, every week I need to know X, Y, and Z. That's a great question. Great question. And I'll say my views around this are ever changing and ever evolving because you really need to understand the business, what drives the business, like what drives cash flow, what drives revenue, how much, how much capital needs to be invested in the business. And as much as I like to say, each business basically goes off the same fundamentals. There are nuances that I think you need to understand for each business and understanding like which metrics that you should be looking at. One of the um, things I recommend everyone to read are the, the constellation software letters, like Mark Leonard, the CEO wrote, presidential or, you know, the president's letter every single year for the past, for, from the years like 2006 to 2018. And one of the things that I remember from those letters, and I think that he did really well, is really understanding which metrics drove the businesses that they owned, the software businesses that they owned, like, and he tracked them year over year on a, on a growth basis, on a, on a cumulative basis. And so, and I, I, I take inspiration from, from those, from those metrics. Like he has them all charted out, right? Like, Hey, this is our, Free cash flow is our organic growth. This is our return on invested capital from 2006, seven, eight, now all the way down to like 2018. So I'm still learning my, or sorry, improving my uh, understanding around metrics on on what to look for. But generally speaking, we want to look at things like the free cash flow that a business generates in a given period. How much invested capital is in the business? So typically, with with a private equity transaction, the invested capital shouldn't change very frequently. Unlike a VC company that's frequently raising money, like every single year, when, when we buy a company, there's usually one equity check that goes in at closing. And then sometimes there's debt, sometimes there, there, there's not. And uh, the, the invested capital should be pretty much a sticky number. Like it shouldn't change, right? So it all comes down to how much of it stays invested or how much of it is returned back to shareholders, right? So if there's a dividend, you know, a couple of years, then the invested capital base should actually reduce, should actually get lower. And the business's free cash flow that we should track, we generally track on a a month-to-month basis, kind of tells us the the health of the business, right? And um, so that's one metric we want to track for sure is is free cash flow, which is operating cash flow, subtract capital expenditures, which in for most software businesses, that's basically R&D, which technically flows to the P&L, but that is your, your, your CapEx, if you you will, because there's, you know, there's no capital on the, on the balance sheet, or sorry, no assets on the balance sheet. Another metric we're on track to is customer movements. These are really important to us. All of our businesses have recurring customers, right? So annual recurring contracts. Oftentimes customers pay up front. Sometimes they pay for two years up front. And actually we have a client that's paying three years up front. We want to track how many customers are being acquired each month, how many are, are churning, how many are upgrading, right? So with a pricing tier, sometimes customers upgrade to a higher pricing tier. Sometimes they downgrade, right? And so kind of seeing the net movement there to figure out the health of the customers because in the business we, we acquire, the customers are the assets basically, right? Like in their, in their contracts that they're, they're signed with the company, the recurring contracts. 
that's what we're buying, right? We're not buying buildings or machinery or equipment. We're buying basically IP code bases and customer contracts. And so being able to track the customer movements on a month-to-month basis, how many customers go up, down, acquired, lost, I think those are, those are pretty key to track as well. So what do we got here? Free cash flow, invested capital, customer movements, and marketing performance is pretty key as well too. Like just because like I have a pretty good background in marketing, so I understand like what a cost per acquisition should look like, what a cost per lead should look like. You know, we, we, with, with all of our companies, we're spending a decent amount of money with Google ads and, and, you know, SEO doing content and trying to track what our return is on that. Like how many, how many customers are being generated each month, each quarter, each year, whether it makes sense to increase spend, decrease spend. And so marketing efficient, marketing dollar efficiency is pretty key for us to track as well. That, that just is like a masterclass in, in, in how to build or buy a company. So a couple things I just want to touch on that. So the, the interesting thing is, because you have a background in, in marketing and especially in performance marketing, customer acquisition costs piece is one that you have a really good insight around. And on top of that, you've got, you know, you're, you're a professional accountant. So you understand things like free cash flow, invested capital, customer movements. One thing you sort of skipped over, but you mentioned it, but your, your cash conversion cycle also sounds really good. So in the sense that you have customers pay you up front for a year or maybe even two or three. Three years, you get a ton of cash in before you have to pay any of it out. So you've got lots of cash sitting in your bank accounts, which is, which is always always a position to be in. Just going back to what you were saying earlier, so you mentioned Mark Leonard Constellation Software, which is which is kind of the model that a lot of these companies like like yours are are modeled after. Of course, you know Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, Watson, of course, with Fairfax. Did you model your business or are you modeling your business after any one of these in particular or is it sort of just sort of inspiration in general? Inspiration in general. Like, uh, like no one in particular, really. I'm, I'm writing my own story. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm kind of carving, carving out my own path, I guess. And I, I take a lot of inspiration from a lot of successful operators, a lot of successful investors, some of the greatest that I've ever done it. Like, you know, obviously Buffett and Leonard and all these kind of guys. But you know, markets change, things evolve. So I think like for, for me, I'm, I'm not modeling myself, after modeling art, my activities after anyone, every, any single one. I'm always open to change as well, right? I've, I've, you know, made career pivots at least twice in my life. There, there could be more in the future, wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, long, long story short, I, I, I do draw inspiration from a lot of people and a lot of great investors, but carving my own path here, at least, <laughs> at least trying to. <laughs> So let, let's talk about real estate for a second. And this is a, an area that I've always been interested in. I've never gotten into it in any kind of a big way. Um, how, does, how do you think about real estate in your, in your investing in the sense that, that you know, you, you, you sort of play in businesses that are high cash flow, um, high return investment, um, obviously they're high a lot of money to spend on things without having to reinvest a whole bunch of capital back on businesses. And then you've got real estate, which is basically the opposite of all those things. things. Um, um, why do you why like real estate and what do you think it offers? Yeah, great, great question. I think earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that I think service businesses are great first businesses that entrepreneurs should start to kind of get their, you know, cut their teeth. I think real estate is a great first investment that, you know, people that want to actually roll up their sleeves and get into investing should do for a few reasons. First and foremost, it's it, one of the benefits of real estate is that it's, it's accessible for a lot of people, right? Like it's anyone with a decent income can 
pool some cash together, put a down payment down and buy like a cash flowing property. It's a lot easier to buy real estate than it is to buy a company, put it that way, right? So, or investing in private companies or anything like that. that. That's like, you know, like level eight or nine difficulty, whereas investing in real estate is like level, you know, like four or five. It's still hard, don't get me wrong, but relative to investing in companies, I think it's it's a pretty straightforward way for a someone that's kind of getting into investing to to get into. The second reason is leverage. I think in order to get anywhere, especially while you're young, in order to get anywhere fast or fast enough that uh, you build a sizable portfolio, you, you need a bit of leverage. And there's no asset class in this world that has better access to leverage and the most favorable type of leverage than real estate. And there's a few reasons why. Uh, obviously, all the banks offer mortgages of, of all, all different types, right? Like there's interest only, there's amortizing, rate fixed, rate variable, all that kind of stuff. Unlike, and I know a lot of people will say, well, you can borrow to buy, you know, you can use margin to buy stocks as well. The problem with margin is that it's callable, right? And when you, when you, if your stock portfolio has a short-term dip or whatnot, you may know that it's only short-term and it's going to rebound to the original value in the long-term, but the brokerage accounts, they don't care, right? Like if you, if you fall below your margin requirement, they're going to sell, they're going to liquidate you and sell your your stocks. Whereas in real estate, it doesn't matter. Like once you get that mortgage, you got that mortgage. Like it doesn't matter where the value of your real estate goes. Your bank's not going to be calculating and there's no requirement to have like a loan to value after you've closed the deal. You can focus on the cash flow. You can focus on how much rental income that's coming in and whether that's sufficient and you have a little bit of margin of safety over the mortgage payment that needs to go out. Right. And so it's very favorable debt, right? Like 25 year amortized at like prime rate, like two, 3%. You're not going to find that kind of debt anywhere else. Like not in, not to buy stocks, not to buy businesses, not to buy nothing. Right. So the real estate gives you access to the best form of leverage that you can get to buy any, any kind of asset. Right. So what was my first point? Easy to, fairly easy to understand, easy to access. You could get debt and it has cash flow. Right. So. One of the main things that people overlook is that cash flow is really important early in your career because you got you have bills to pay, right? And so you could buy stocks for equity appreciation, but if they're not really generating enough cash flow to cover your expenses, what's going to cover your expenses, right? Like what's going to cover your, you know, your living expenses, your day-to-day expenses, you know, you got to either sell down your stock or borrow against it. And I just finished talking about why borrowing margin kind of sucks. And so you, you know, the great thing about real estate is, you know, you can, you can hold it and it'll appreciate probably not nearly as fast as like a stock would or, or, you know, a different like a business would, cause there's obviously a lot more growth in a business than a real estate's just a, you know, piece of land and building. It's not going to basically, you know, it's not going to grow like business might, but it produces cash flow and excess cash flow that you can actually use to pay your expenses, which can kind of get you off the baseline there. Right. So the cash flow part is really important early in your career. It'll give you the freedom to make larger bets and, you know, do the, give you the freedom to actually do what you want with your, with your career and, and whether it's investing or entrepreneurship, you know, building another business or so on and so forth. So I'll, I'll, I'll recap one more time here. So fairly easy to understand, easy to access, the, easy to get leverage for, so you can, you know, m- multiply the money that you actually have in the bank to buy a larger asset and cash flow, So you can actually pay for living expenses and pay for your day-to-day cost of living. Yeah. 
That's that's a phenomenal explanation. And I love what you said that a service business should be everyone's first company. Real estate should be everyone's first investment. I'll just add on one more point there. The thing that that I always find interesting about real estate is that people who get rich off real estate, because you see on social media or, or you know, just on, you know, on television or whatever, you'll see people who are like, you know, extremely wealthy and their business is real estate. That's different from investing in real estate as as a place to park your money. Because in that case, like people who get rich quick, you know, relatively quick in five or 10 years off real estate, they're probably doing things like developing real estate or flipping real estate or property management. There's probably other stuff happening. They're running a, an operating business that happens to be in the real estate vertical yeah. versus folks who park their money in real estate. And as you said, it's a great, great, great investment because you have appreciation, you have principal pay down, you have cash flow. So people should separate those two things. Real estate is not a place where you're going to get rich unless you are building a business in real estate. I, I, I love that. You're, you're on point. I, I couldn't, there's nothing more I can add. You, you said it really well. <laughs> well, you, you, you leave very little for me to say because you, you, you make such great points, Jay. So I'm, I'm just trying to add a little bit where I can. Well, this is awesome. So let, let me just finish up with a couple questions here just on some of the, of the more tactical things. So you're buying businesses. Do you have any kind of goal in mind? Like, are you trying to build a portfolio of like, 20 businesses in five years or what, what's, what's your North star? I don't have like a goal as in like, Hey, I, I want to reach this destination and 20 businesses or X number or whatnot. It's more along the lines of like, I, I don't do, I don't do what I call destination goals. I, I do more process goals. So it's like problem with destination goals is they're, they're arbitrary. You know, they're very finite, right? You hit them and then what? Like you're happy or you're satisfied and then you got to set another destination goal and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, getting to 20 businesses or hundred businesses or whatever it might be like, you know, or this you know, X millions of dollars or billions. It's just, you hit that and then what? Like, you know, you got to set another one. I think for me, I rather focus on process goals. Like how am I spending my time on a, on a regular basis? So like my, my, am I happy with the time that I'm spending right now? And so my, my goals right now are, you know, looking for, first of all, working with great businesses, great owners, great operators, generating great returns for, for myself and, and my investors. The, if, I, if I could spend the bulk of my time looking at great opportunities and assessing different opportunities, as well as managing my existing portfolio companies, I'm happy, right? And so, so I think my, my process goals right now is basically enjoy what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis, uh, like kind of understand when I'm not enjoying it <laughs> and go to make that switch. And, you know, focus my time looking on, on great opportunities. Like I'm a genuinely curious person. So I like learning about different industries and different niches and things like that. And so if I can kind of spend, let's just say like 40% of my time, like learning, reading, whether it's reading financial statements, reading like the private equity world, there's something called SIMS. So it's like confidential information memorandum. It's, it's what a, an investment banker prepares when they're looking to sell a company. It's kind of like a, like a, you know, like a 20 page or a 30 page summary on a business. Um, and I really enjoy reading those, right? I mean, they, they often have a lot of information around the industry, around the business and all that kind of stuff. So I read a lot of those these days, you know, read a lot of financial statements, a lot of books and, and learning, writing. And so that's kind of my, my, my process there. If I could spend like, you know, a big chunk of my time looking at various opportunities, I would be, and then, and then you know, being able to act on the, the best ones that I see, that's kind of my, my, my goal right now. Are you investing out of your own money or you, do you have a fund or are you going to build a fund? It, it's a bit of both. So it's a bit of my own money. It's also a bit of, we, we work with a group of investors as, as limited partners. 
and we we raise so at least few equity raises on a deal by deal basis. So anytime we get a deal under contract, we call up our capital partners that we work with, and we set the opportunity together, and 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 we make the investment uh, if if it makes sense. Got it. So you don't have a full bunch of capital that you that you're forced to spend because you're raising on a deal by deal basis. That that that's correct. That's correct. And most so most private equity firms do operate with a committed pool of capital of a fund. Atlas Few may get there one day in the future. Um, I just think that for now, I would prefer to not have that pressure to deploy capital and prefer to kind of take my time and opportunity to take the time so I could look at various opportunities and kind of deploy at my own will. The problem is when you when you raise a committed pool of capital, the game kind of changes from looking for great opportunities to deploying that capital, right? So the incentives kind of change because you don't, you know, you, you earn your fees on as you deploy. And then the, 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 as soon as you deploy, you kind of your next, that most firms kind of focus on their next fund, right? They start raising for fund two, fund three, fund, fund four. So you kind of get in this like cycle of like, just you change from a, an investing firm looking for opportunities to a deploying capital firm looking to just deploy capital, right? So those are two very different games. And I don't want to play that latter game of deplo- just deploying capital. And so, so yeah, I, for, for now, I'm, I'm sticking to raising money on a deal by deal basis, looking at opportunities as they, as they come by. That's a great way to put it. There's a difference between being an investor and being a capital deployer, like a professional person that has to spend the money because your companies are, are, are waiting for you to, uh, to do that. Let me ask you one last question here. When did you get into the Twitter, under, on Twitter, but even, even beyond Twitter, you're, you're blogging, you're putting all this information. When did that start and why did you decide to kind of, kind of spill everything that you know? I've been writing on my blog probably for about 10 years. I think since I started my business, ClientFlow, my first PPC agency. And I've been kind of, you know, sporadically, I probably the first like, actually, you know what? No, you know what? Actually, earlier than that, I think I actually started my first blog 2012, right? So actually when I was still working at Deloitte and I was really interested in investing, I, I, <laughs> my old blog, which actually doesn't exist anymore, I, I collapsed it into my, my jvast.com. I used to write about like really funny topics like going through like Enron's financials and things like that. But I've been writing for a while and I actually really enjoy writing. And so I, but I wrote, I wrote very sporadically for the first like eight years. So like I write, write like every like, you know, three months, every six months or like once a year, like, you know, like maybe like every, whenever I felt like it. But when I, and then for, for the past two years, maybe two and a half years, I decided to actually take writing a bit more seriously and do it as a part of my routine. So I built a habit of writing now and I, and I do it consistently now. Right now I'm right on a cadence of once a month. So I always publish a blog post once a month. And so that's kind of how I got into writing. And I, and I write for a few reasons. One, I actually genuinely enjoy it. I, I think writing is a, it's, it's therapeutic. It helps me kind of gather my thoughts. It, it helps me kind of understand. It helps me articulate some of the ideas that I have and the, uh, say like an investment thesis or a framework or something. Getting it, there's no better way of kind of sound testing it if, by, than, than actually writing it down and publishing it for the public to see, right? So I know a lot of people would say, hey, yeah, you're so kind of putting all your wisdom out there for, for free for everyone and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is I'm actually just, I'm writing for myself, right? Like I'm, I'm actually writing for, 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 for Jay. And then kind of, you know, seeing whether my ideas and thoughts kind of make sense and, you know, other people benefit. That's great, too. So that, that's kind of how I got into the writing on the blog thing. I kind of discovered Twitter 
as like a, like a thing, like, you know, like FinTwit and real estate Twitter and all that kind of stuff, probably about during the pandemic when probably a lot of people discovered Twitter. And Twitter is, a, is probably one of the best networking platforms that exist today, right? And so it's, uh, there's so many great people putting so much content out there for, for basically for free. Most of it's free, right? Like all these like tweet storms around building businesses, investing, digital marketing, all that kind of stuff that you just, you, you will not find anywhere else on the internet, you know, not on Facebook or Instagram or not on, you know, any kind of forum, any kind of business forum or anything like that. So I think the community on Twitter is just absolutely incredible, right? Like people like yourself, John, are, are on there and, uh, you know, you, it's, it's a great way to kind of meet people, share content, share wisdom. So I got into probably the Twitter thing somewhere around the pandemic time, like early 2020 or so. And it's just been game changing. The amount, the, the number of people I've met through Twitter, you know, that just, I just wouldn't have the opportunity to meet in real life, right? Like I just, we just wouldn't be able to cross paths in a regular setting through Twitter that enables that, right? And so it's been, it's, it's a career changer. Uh, anyone that's listening, that's not regularly posting on Twitter and putting content out there. I highly encourage you to do it. No matter how, if, no matter how niche your knowledge is, or no matter, you know, how you, you may think people won't care or whatever. I, I, I challenge you to rethink those assumptions and, and get on Twitter, put content out there. And, you know, if, I, I can guarantee you within, if you consistently post your knowledge on Twitter, consistently engage with people, have conversations, join the right circle, follow the right people in a span of like two, three months, you'll make career changing, you know, connections and, and come across opportunities that you'll, you'll, you'll never have come across otherwise. I, I, I second everything you said, Jay. And I'll say that, you know, I follow, I, I've made a great circle of connections on, on Twitter. I'm growing on there every day. And the stuff that you put out there, I mean, the stuff that you put out there on how to build an investment firm, building your, I think I read a blog post on, on the mini Berkshire, how to build a mini Berkshire. The stuff that you put out there really is gold. And finding people like you on Twitter and just seeing all this information is free and people are telling you, telling you stuff that you, you literally can't even learn in business school. If you're, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, whether it's finance or real estate or, or whatever it is, we're talking about entrepreneurship here. But whatever your passion is, Twitter really is the place to do that. And you don't need to, to get into the noise. You know, There's a lot of noise that happens on Twitter that we hear about in the media. I'm on Twitter every day. I don't even see it because it's just not part of my circle. So that's great. Where can we find you, follow you, and, and learn more? Yeah, you can... Um, if you're on Twitter, it's JVAS Digital. So that's uh, J-A-Y-V-A-S Digital. And if, you, if you, anyone wants to go to my website, jvas.com, there's a blog there. I, I post once a month. And... I would highly recommend anyone that's listening that is interested in following to subscribe to my email list, which is there's a link in my Twitter bio. And that way you get kind of you know, updates on new blog posts and different opportunities that I share with my network. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jay, for joining us today. John, thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.